With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. As you start watching what's unfolding, whatever the problem is, it's a leadership problem. Like that, that's number one. There's a problem. The problem is a leadership problem. Oh, yeah. Something that Leif always brings up is that there's two measures of leadership. It's either effective or it's ineffective. So if it's been working for 17 years and it's not working now, that means it was effective before, but it's ineffective now. And we have to get over our ego, figure out what the real problem is, and solve it. The fact that you have to realize on the battlefield or in a business that you're doing something wrong as a leader, uh, you have to almost sense in your body, oh, I have a little too much ego going into this situation and that's why I just missed something because there was an ego blind spot. And I sort of feel a lot of these dichotomies you talk about in the book, a lot of it is about noticing first there's a little ego I'm putting into a situation and then figuring out exactly what's happening. Ego causes so many problems. And that's one of the things we talk about. If, if we see problems on teams, if we see uh, you know friction points and, and some failings or things that aren't happening the way they should, I mean, 99.9% of the time, there's some ego issue in there. And someone's not able to check their ego, putting themselves before the mission, before the team. That's one of those things you got to balance. You have to have an ego because if you don't have ego, you're not ever going to strive to do anything. You're not going to compete. You're not going to try to be the best in what you do. And yet, ego can also be totally destructive. And we see leaders that'll just, they'll ride a plan into the ground and destroy their entire company just to prove that they were right. Because they can't admit their plan was a failure. And I think you see that a lot more in corporate America than in the battlefield. You might be surprised by that, James. We saw troops put themselves in serious harm's way and it, it cost people their lives or, or at least cost people to have be seriously wounded and injured because they didn't listen to uh, s- some very valid criticism. It was all a matter of ego. So I am so happy once again to have Jocko Willink and his frequent co-author, Leif Babin. Did I say the last name right? Yeah, right, James. Good work. So welcome back to the show. Jocko, this is your third time on the show. Leif, your first time. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, we want to identify for the audience who is who. So Jocko. This is Jocko, and this is about how I talk. And Leif. This is Leif. This is how I talk. Now, you both actually sound like Navy SEALs. Like, does the voice, like, get deeper in Bud's training? Like, did you always talk like this? Like, if I want to talk like I'm a Navy SEAL, I'll lower my voice. And... That, that actually didn't help, James. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, I'm not a Navy SEAL. You do, you do have to raise your voice uh, during combat situations or training situations. You have to, you have to yell 
And and again, I don't want to give the impression that people that in the SEAL teams we just yell at each other or yell to give direction to people. But when there's when there's gunfire going on, in order to communicate, you actually do have to yell. And since we do iterative training where we're doing that type of yelling over gunfire, your voice can take a little bit of abuse and sometimes it has an effect to to make it a little bit more raspy. Ah, because you've been in like like just how many combat situations would you say between the two of you you've been in? A lot. We, a, we got a lot. I mean, is and, a lot like twelve or is it a thousand? Not a thousand. I mean, there's a lot more people have done a lot more than us. Uh, but we were we were very fortunate in our deployment together, Ramadi, in 2006, to be part of uh, some some really uh, intense uh, urban uh, uh, urban combat operations, and uh, we got in what we did 150 plus combat missions for our task unit. Well, and, th- and this is going to be related, of course, to the book. So, so first off, before I say the title of the book, Jocko, I owe you a huge apology. It's okay. <laughs> you were total. I said to you in the last podcast, oh, oh, just as a throwaway comment, oh, that's a bad title for your book. So the book's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. And not only is it a great book, it's a great title because for every important, like you always see these books, like here are the 12 rules of leadership, but there's always a flip side. There's always the other side where for you know rules are made to be broken. And I think that's that dichotomy is understanding at a core level, oh, I'm hitting that area, that fuzzy area where I may need to consider this, this core rule of leadership. And so that's the dichotomy. And you give 12 examples of, of where that dichotomy could take place. And and it, this book is structured very well. You're, you're, you, you both wrote it. You, you go back and forth. You kind of list... A chapter title might be, you know, what, what one of the um, rules of leadership plus its its uh, you know opposite. That's For instance, di- disciplined but not rigid. Right, disciplined but not rigid, and and then you'll give the military example of where uh, you might be too disciplined, but then and so you have to learn to be not rigid in certain situations. Then you explore the principle, and then you give the corporate example because now you two guys run a company, Echelon Front, where you take your principles of leadership and apply it to corporate situations. And so, and it's very interesting to see how the exact concepts you learn in these life and death situations kind of resonate in the corporate level. And as I'm reading the book, I've been involved in many types of businesses. I run a business. I can see all of these things. I'm thinking of myself, oh, I should be doing more of this, or I should be thinking like this in this situation, or here's where I made a mistake and didn't quite follow the dichotomy. You know, sometimes I stick too rigidly to what my core values are. And you see this, uh, I'll, I'll get into questions in a second, but you see this constantly when you're describing your the battle situations. This is real life and death, you know, situations, and you're learning the hard way the hardest way possible where your standard operating procedures might need to be kind of in flux a little bit, you know, moment by moment. Like Absolutely. And just like you said, where you may notice as a leader, you're sticking too rigid to something and you need to be more flexible, that, that absolutely happens on the battlefield. And that's something that once we were running training, we tried to make the leaders aware of the fact that sometimes your standard operating procedure is not going to work and you have to be able to be creative and come up with another idea to solve the problem. You know, but it seems like with with the Army and with the SEALs, your standard, and I don't know anything about, about it, so correct me if I'm wrong, but 
your standard operating procedures are so drilled into you, uh, it must be hard in a battlefield situation to say, uh, oh, I have to change, you know, or I have to, I have to make different sense of this than the 99 out of 100 times where the standard operating procedure works. Well, we actually train to a point that people learn to recognize that their standard operating procedure isn't going to work. And one of the ways that you do that is as a leader, you don't get totally absorbed in the tactical situation at hand. You actually detach, you step back, you, you remove yourself from that immediate problem so that you can look around and see what's actually happening and recognize that there's got to be a better way to do this because what we're doing right now is not working. And as far as you know, I, I talk a lot about Jimmy Page because Jimmy Page, you know, probably, if not the greatest, definitely one of the greatest rock and roll guitarists of all times, but he began his career as a studio musician who had to play the notes specifically as they were required and as they were written. And because he was so disciplined in that practice, eventually when he formed Led Zeppelin and was allowed to let loose, he could see that he could he was free to create massively um, and impromptu on the spot create these incredible riffs because he had that discipline and those that structure up front that allowed him more freedom on the backside to be creative and that's the exact same thing that happens on the battlefield with a good combat leader and you know I think it happens in in basically every area of life so you so for one thing the Jimmy Page example is great has Led Zeppelin even made one bad album. <laughs> No, I don't think. I think they're like the only band in history that's not made a single bad album. I, I put the number for for a band to be great. You've got to put five good albums out in a row, and there's uh, and there's not a lot of bands that can do that. You know, you got Led Zeppelin, you got Black Sabbath, you got ACDC, and Motorhead. <laughs> that's funny. I don't uh, know anyone else. I, I'm not as familiar with Motorhead. Five is a lot. That's a that's a lot of albums. Five is a lot. I would I would put Metallica in there, but Jocko doesn't. Uh, anything after the Black album in Jocko's uh, mind is is not real Metallica. <laughs> I, I, I of all of those, I like, still like Led Zeppelin the best. Absolutely. But, well, but, Black Sabbath's better, but it's okay. But you know, it also it also uh, reminds me of like something Kurt Vonnegut said, which is you know he's he's often considered experimental, but he said you can't be experimental unless you know the rules of grammar first. Like you got to be a good writer before you go be experimental. Andy Warhol was probably the best illustrator on for all the adv advertising agencies on Madison Avenue before he, you know, created pop art. Like before he was able to, he knew enough about just standard traditional art, and he had the skill and the talent before he could, and he developed his craft before he could go and and riff. And I think that happens in every area of life. But of course, again, in a battlefield situation or a business leadership situation, there's often very high stakes not just career stakes, but you know, lives are at stake or jobs are at stake or businesses are at stake. And so it's interesting, again, to see how you guys, like, and there's a certain Zen quality to it as well. The fact that you have to realize on the battlefield or in a business that something's going wrong, that you're doing something wrong as a leader, uh, you have to sort of see, almost sense in your body, like, oh, I have a little too much ego going into this situation and that's why I'm not, I just missed something because there was an ego blind spot. And I sort of feel a lot of these, the, the, the dichotomies you, you talk about in the book, a lot of it is about noticing first, there's a little ego I'm putting into a situation and then figuring out exactly what's happening. Ego causes so many problems. And that's one of the things we talk about. If, if we see problems on teams, 
if we see uh, you know friction points and and some failings or things that aren't happening the way they should i mean 99.9 percent .9 of the time there's some ego issue in there and someone's not able to check their ego putting themselves before the the mission before the team so uh that's one of those things you got to balance i mean you got to ego you have to have an ego because if, if you don't have ego you're not ever going to strive to do anything. You're not going to compete. You're not going to try to be the best in what you do. And yet ego can also be totally destructive. So when you put that, you know, I've got to be right before, uh, actually the mission comes first and I don't care who gets the credit for it. Um, you know, that, then, uh, that becomes totally destructive. And we see leaders that'll just, they'll ride a plan into the ground and destroy their entire team and company just to prove that, that, uh, that they were right or, or to at least not to admit that their plan because uh, they can't admit their plan was was a failure. And I think that. you see that a lot more in corporate America than in the battlefield, I bet, because, again, with uh, it's it's higher stakes in the battlefield because there are lives at risk. You, you might be surprised by that, James. We saw, there, there's an example in here in this book. There's There are multiple examples we give you from the battlefield where uh, troops would not listen to some obvious, very uh, helpful constructive criticism from people that, that were there on the ground and put themselves and their troops in serious harm's way, uh, in serious har harm's way, and, and it, it cost people their lives or, or at least uh, cost people to have be, be seriously wounded and injured because they didn't listen to uh, s some very valid criticism or, hey, you should think about this or that, and they thought they knew better, and it was all a matter of ego. Well, and, and you give a lot of examples in the book. I like the example, uh, Leif, I think you wrote this one, um, and you guys alternate writing uh, different different chapters. There was the one where you're, you're moving forward, uh, and I think Chris Kyle was on the team, and he suggested a different uh, building for you to to look east instead of south. And I think it was you who, who, who you were the commanding officer in that unit. I'm not, I don't know if I'm using the right uh, ground force commander is what we call it. So I'm the senior guy on the ground. And Jocko actually came in, rode in uh, the back of a Bradley fighting vehicle, which is kind of a smaller tank, and they were they were moving down this. Uh, I mean, it was probably what three quarters of a mile from the, the main route through the city down this road where they're trying to get in. It took, what, like three or four hours for them to get there because they were clearing out IEDs the entire way behind the, the mine clearance helmet. Um, but but I, had to, I had to lean on Chris on that. It was, I was the senior guy in charge. I'm the leader. And you know, as, as we say that in that chapter, you have, in order to be a good leader, you also have to be a good follower as well. Right, that's the dichotomy in that exactly. chapter. And, and, and you were questioning yourself, though, like, there, there, there was a, there was first. You had to wrestle with the ego before making the decision. Like y you had to decide: is this a situation where I lead because I'm, I am the commanding officer here, or is this? this uh, you had to sense in yourself. No, I think better to follow. Like, so how do you recognize that in yourself when you're hitting that that gray area where the dichotomy, where the, the this yes or no point in leadership starts? You start to feel it in, in yourself. That detachment that Jocko talked about, that's all important. And if you can take a step back and think, okay, what's best for the team? What's best to accomplish the mission? And in that situation, I mean, here's Chris Kyle. He's my most experienced sniper, uh, not only in our platoon, but in the entire task unit. Uh, and one of the most experienced snipers in the SEAL teams at that point. Um, and even though he's, you know, I outrank him uh, and he's a junior leader on the team, uh, I I've got to, you know, I've got to listen to him. He's got more experience than me. So I need to listen to him and I follow his plan that he's recommending because ultimately it's not about me. It's about the mission. And I think that's, that's where ego comes into play. Le leaders want to prove, no, I, I have to, uh, this has to come from me. It has to be my idea so that I can show everyone that I'm in charge. 
And ultimately, if you try to do that, people just lose respect for you. And, and, and the thing that people are scared of, like, will they lose respect for me if it's not my plan, is actually the opposite happens. People gain respect for those leaders because uh, you can see that leader cares about the mission more than himself. It's not about him. He puts his ego in check. Uh, and those are the kind of leaders that, that people admire and want to work for because they're successful. Right, and then there's the uh, example where your uh, other soldiers had the um, patches uh, sewn on, you know, they had kind of semi-frivolous patches sewn onto their uniforms and you didn't want to, um, uh, annoy the other units they were working with. And, but then they kind of disobeyed you a little bit by sewing it on the inside of their uniforms. Or well, no, you're, you're saying they, like it was someone else. It wasn't someone else. It was my guys. In fact, it was this guy sitting next to me <laughs> and to kind of set the stage a little bit, there was the the the, U, the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps are very strict with their uniform policies, and it's deeper than that. They're just strict with their uniform policies. They actually judge other people on if they can wear their uniform correctly, and that's not an insensible thing because if you think about it, if you're in the Army and I'm in the Army, and I look at your uniform and you can't wear your uniform to the standards, you can't wear your uniform correctly, then how can I actually trust you to do anything correctly out on the battlefield? So... I knew that the Marine Corps and the Army looked at uniforms that way. Now, the SEAL teams, we don't think that way. And in fact, we don't really care what people, what uniform you wear or what you look like. And so in the SEAL teams, we have a tendency for guys to wear mismatched uniforms. They'll wear their civilian hunting pants and a pair of hiking boots and a, and a, a workout t-shirt underneath some brand new, hot off the press, tactical uh, top. And so they look complete. They look like a bunch of a bunch of gypsies going in going into combat. And in order, and I knew that we would get judged by that. So I said, "Listen, guys, we're going to wear the proper uniform. We're going to wear." You, you you knew you were going to get judged because this was a situation where you're going to be working with other units. Yes. When we went to Ramadi, I knew that we were going to be working very closely with the Army and the Marine Corps. And so before going, I said, "Look, we're going to wear squared away uniforms, no mixing, matching." and squared away haircuts, no, no big beards and goatees, which seals love to grow and think it's cool. And, and, and that's fine. But in this situation, it wasn't appropriate. And so I said, look, wear good uniforms. Now, once we're wearing good uniforms, the guys start thinking about, well, how can we, how can we make our fashion statement, right? If we can't wear uniforms and the way you can do it is by, by wearing little patches and the patches would start, you know, everyone wears an American flag, but then, you know, let's not just get an American flag. Let's get a you know football team flag on the other arm, and then let's get some quote from some movie that we like. Or let's more get some, cowbell was one of my favorite ones. Yeah, we'll get one that says more cowbell from from Saturday Night Live, and you know just the most random things. And then it starts to get to let's see, you can make the most completely inappropriate patch, sure. something that's just completely offensive to everyone, and we'll wear that because that'll be funny. And so as this started to get more and more out of hand. I went to Leif and, and the other platoon commander, Seth Stone, and said, all right, guys, hey, we're, we're not wearing patches because, again, we want to make a good impression. We want to build a good relationship. We want them to think that we're good to go. And so we're just going to look uniform and no patches. And these guys, you know, they said, hey, sounds good to us. We won't wear patches. And this was pretty much right before we went on deployment that uh, I laid down that law. And that's the way it went. Or so I thought. <laughs> because Leif had other plans. Go ahead. So what, what Jocko uh, didn't know was that we, uh, me and Seth Stone, so the two platoon commanders, so we, we're the next, I'm the, I'm the second senior guy in Tasking and Bruiser, and then Seth is the third senior guy in Tasking and Bruiser, so we're his direct reports. 
And uh, we had said, you know what? We need a we need a patch. So we designed these patches. I had one that was Lord Humongous from the Road Warrior, uh, and then we had another one that was a big cow skull. And uh, that's it. Wait, is Lord Humongous the one with the red hair who's like always screaming? No, that's, Lord Humongous has the metal hockey mask on. Oh yeah, yeah. With the, yeah. Uh, that guy. The, the when I was a kid, that guy scared the hell out of me. <laughs> That was, so that was see, see that's weird. I identified with him on a personal level. <laughs> so as, as, see, as we the, obviously as the dysto- yeah. in the dystopian world that we're entering into, you guys are gonna win, and I'm I'm the first one dying. I don't escape <laughs> from New York, so I don't even have to worry about that world. So we we put these patches together. We, you know, secretly we we had them made. I mean, we had to get a, somebody to sew them real quickly. We we box them up. I shoved them on one of the pallets. We fly to Ramadi. Uh, when we land in Ramadi, I like snuck him off the pallet, but under, you know, when, when Jocko and his, uh, his immediate staff weren't, were away, we like distributed amongst everybody. And then we'd, we'd have them hidden in our, there's a cargo pocket that you have on your, on your, your shoulder of, of your uniforms. And there's Velcro on the outside of that. So if Jocko, this was is a lot of work base, to disobey Jocko. It was, it was a whole lot of work. And, and we know there's a lot which of, is, which is important to know if, if you disobeyed uh, Jocko. So as we're rolling out on operations, uh, we'd have those patches in, in the pocket. So if Jocko was staying back in the tactical operations center to monitor if there are multiple uh, uh, operations going on, then he'd, he'd stay back at, at our, on base at the talk and uh, our tactical operations center. So we'd be rolling out and, and the call would come over the radio, patches on. So everybody would take their patches, slap them on their uniforms, and now we had our patches. And what we didn't plan for, because we're not used to these sort of things, like we, we go out in operations as just SEALs. But we were working very closely with the Army and Marine Corps, and and one of the Army units had an embedded uh, reporter with them, and they took a bunch of photos, and Uh, these photos come back to Jocko, and sure enough, there's a big patch on the arm. Yeah, they come back for clearance to know to make sure that I think they're appropriate to be to be sent out without revealing any classified information. So I'm scanning through the pictures, and it's it's completely just standing staring right back at me that the guys are all wearing these patches, and of course this was. In 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 complete a complete disobeying of what I had told them, and on top of that, you know, this is early in the deployment. This is a matter of weeks into deployment where we are absolutely trying to establish a good reputation with the Army and Marine Corps. So it's unbelievable that these guys would make this huge effort to disobey something that I told them when it made perfect sense to listen to what I was saying, so that we could provide better support and get more respect and do more combat operations with the army and Marine Corps. So as I sat there and looked at these patches, you know, the first minute that I sat there, I was, you know, going through my mind, the various punishments that I was going to <laughs> unleash. Well, well, and and well, as, soon as, as soon as I found out about it, I, I knew, right, the hammer's going to fall. And this is me. I mean, I did it. So I'm expecting the absolute hammer to fall. What's a possible punishment? Well, there's all kinds of things. I, I mean, everything from keeping them, you know, the worst punishment that I could have done to, to either him or the other platoon commander would say, you're not going on missions and make them stay back. And we did that to a couple guys through deployment. And that's the biggest punishment you can give a SEAL is say, you're not allowed to go on on operations. So that was my first thought. I was like, okay, these guys don't want to listen to what I'm saying. Fine. He's not going out on any operations. And then it went, you know, there's all kinds of things that, that I, that went through my mind for about 30 seconds to a minute. And then of course I sat there and thought about it. And, and part of the thing that was making me want to punish them was my ego thinking, how could these guys ever disobey? And believe me, these guys did more, you know, did everything I ever asked them to do. And here they are disobeying me. That hurts my ego. So I should just crush them, prove that I'm the guy that's in charge. That didn't last long. And then I said to myself, okay, why would, why would they actually be doing this? 
What, 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 why is, could this be so important to them that they actually, these guys that have done everything I've ever asked them to do, that they've taken this thing to make a stand on, it means a lot more to them than, than I realize. And I looked at the patches. They, they were smart. They made the patches tactically sound. They were just the same color as our desert uniform. They didn't stand out. They all matched so everyone looked uniform. And I knew if it meant a lot to the platoon commanders, then it must mean a lot to the platoons as well. So instead of unleashing punishment on them, I didn't do anything. Right. So you didn't even mention it to them that you knew, right? He never mentioned, did he mention it to you? Well, I, I knew that he knew, but I was, and I was waiting for the hammer to fall, but it never did. And he never came and said, Hey, keep you're, you're cleared hot. You can wear all the patches you want. But I, so we knew we still kept it. We, we didn't rub it in Jocko's face. We never wore the patches around him. Uh, it, it, we, we always kept it, kept it hidden. And we'd say our patches on as we rolled out. But, uh, but I knew that he, uh, had decided to not drop the hammer. And, and it was a big lesson for me because you look at Jocko, he's this big, intimidating, scary guy that, that people think he's going to hold the line in every situation. And, and I think it was a great example of this dichotomy. You know, there's some things that where you got to hold the line. There's some standards that have to be held and you can't compromise. And then there's some areas where you need to let that go and you need to get, let the team actually have some room to run. Uh, and you, 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 you don't want to smash everyone down all the time. And, and it, was a, it was a big lesson for me. And right, it's so, a real example of the dichotomy. Right, so there's this, so there's this dichotomy on leadership that you know, in general, you want to keep good discipline, and um, I, I think that is that it, what, which specific dichotomy was that? Is that the discipline, but not too uh, not that over discipline? That was specifically the chapter of uh, hold hold them accountable, but don't hold their hands. Right. So, so what first ran through your head was kind of anger, and the anger comes from maybe two parts. One is. There's the ego of um, the commanding officer. I know best, so they should have listened to me. And there's also the ego of, are they insulting me? Mm-hmm. Like, does, did they just do this in my face? To did they not like me? Like, what? We, there's both things happening, perhaps. For sure. And I felt a little bit of all that. And again, I mean, at this point, I was a 34 year old man. I mean, I, I wasn't like I was all freaked out. I, in 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 my heart, I just knew that these guys. They're young. They've got their platoons. They're proud of their platoons. They're proud of this task unit, and they want to show that pride to the world. and And that's not a negative thing. That's right. actually a positive thing. Right. So, so you, so you had that initial, like you said, thirty to sixty seconds of anger slash ego. But then you ask the question, why are they doing this? And, and then you ask the question, um, has, has has anything changed for us tactically? Like, are they putting us at risk tactically, or is there at risk with the original reasons of my order, my initial order? Like, you know, if they're all, if it all sort of looks the same, it might not, you know, be so much in the face of the army and marine units. Uh, if it it, it go it matches the uniform, so it's not going to give away their positions or whatever. So, so you 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 ran through a couple of questions for yourself. You realize it must have been important if they had to go. Like he just described, took him three minutes to describe all the things he did, including sewing the patches or whatever under the the pockets to avoid you finding out. So you realize it must have been super important for them to have this happen. But still, how did you get over the insult? Like you're not. It's not like you're one hundred percent cohesive with your own guys. Because it's just about overcoming your ego, and and. You know, it's, it's actually at this, even at that point in my life, it was like, hey, these guys are more important than me. You know, these guys are more important than me. And if it means a lot to them, then I'm going to deal with it. And that's okay. The other thing that you got to think about is 
how much leadership capital do, do I have? How much leadership capital do I have? Right now, this, we're, we're three weeks into this deployment. We got six months of deployments ahead of us, uh, six months in this deployment ahead of us. And for the next six months, I'm going to be asking these guys, my brothers, to go out, risk their lives on a daily basis, to take this massive amount of pressure, to, to be in situations that they could get wounded or killed on a daily basis. I'm asking them to do that. I'm asking them to be professional. I'm asking them to, to get virtually no sleep. I'm asking them to eat a bunch of crappy food. I'm asking them to be away from their, their families and their wives and their loved ones. I'm asking them to do all this stuff. And on top of all that really meaningful stuff, I'm going to, I'm going to nitpick because they want to put a cool patch on their uniform. It's leadership capital. And I'm not going to waste it on things that don't matter. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be 
VP of en- Entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I think understanding the concept of leadership capital is extremely important because you anybody only has so much. You can't uh, if you if you went in and you you bring up these examples throughout the book, so many different examples. If you go in and you micromanage every day, you quickly spend all your leadership capital. If you go in and you start yelling at somebody every day, you quickly lose all your leadership capital. Um, and there's ways to gain leadership capital as well when you when you do like what you did with Chris Kyle. You gain leadership capital, particularly when the mission's a success. But in this case, one question is, did you feel by, they knew that you knew now that they were disobeying. So did you feel like you should at least acknowledge to them, hey, I see what you guys did. This is why I think it's okay. Because do, you, do, you, do they start thinking, hey, we, can make, we got away with something a little bit. This is like the, the Giuliani's broken window thing in New York City. Like if there's one broken window, there's going to be a lot of broken windows. So does, does Leif start, do you wonder if Leif starts to think, hey, I just got away with something small. Maybe I'll get away with something a little bigger. And that's why we wrote about the dichotomy in the book of these radios that the guys needed to know how to program. And so mm. to make a long story short, 
there's, we all carry a radio in the field and the radios that we use, we use them in a certain mode that only talks to the other seals. And when we got to Ramadi, we, we needed to learn to use it in the mode where it can talk to the army and talk to the Marine Corps. Now in a seal platoon, there's a radio man. And the radio man is like when you have an IT guy at a company, you just give the IT guy your, your computer and he fixes it and then you get it back and it works. And that's what a radio man does. If there's something wrong with your radio, you give it to the radio man, he fixes it, gives it back to you and it works. The problem in Ramadi was we were split up into smaller groups and I knew that sometimes in these smaller groups, these guys wouldn't have a radio man with them. And if they got separated from the radio man and they needed to talk to the army or the Marine Corps, they would need no, to know how to utilize these radios in that mode. And so I said, listen, everyone in this task unit needs to learn how to program these radios themselves. I put that word out. A couple days go by and it's one of the early missions where after I'd put this word out and you know, we got done with a brief, Leif, his Leif's platoon was going out, so he briefs his platoon, and when he would get done briefing the platoon with his guys, I would you know, stand up and say, hey guys, here's a couple things to think about. Make sure we're, we move fast to the target, make sure you maintain security, and make sure you hit the checkpoints with the Marines on your way in so that they know where you're at. Everyone got that. You know, I just kind of cover some major points, and I kind of got covering whatever my major points were that day, and I said, does everyone know how to program their radios? And I got no, no yeses, and no no's. I just got a bunch of nervous looks. And I could tell that they didn't. And, and I said to one of the new guys in, in the front row, I said, let me see your radio. And he, he very nervously pulled his radio out of his gear and handed it to me. And there's a, there's a button on the radio that you can, you can hit and it erases all the information in the radio. So I hit that button and I gave it back to him. And I said, okay, now program your radio. And he didn't know how to do it. And I realized right there that, okay. I said, listen, until you guys know how to program your radios, you're not allowed to leave the wire. You're not going to go on any missions. And that's it. The guys said, okay, stop. We're going to go learn how to program these radios. And everyone learned how to program the radios. And they, they knew that I wasn't going to, I was going to absolutely hold the line on that. And there wasn't going to be any slack given whatsoever. Again, that's because this is a matter of guys' lives. If you're stranded out there in the middle of Ramadi and, the, and you need to talk to the Army and the Marine Corps and you don't know how to program your radio, that could cost you your life. Wearing a patch will not cost you your life. Right, so, so it's still the same uh, two-step thing. Like you have that 30 to 60 seconds, like why didn't these guys listen to me? Why didn't they obey their commander? Um, and then you could ask why, and it could have been, if it were busy or they're just lazy or they didn't realize the importance. And one thing you stress repeatedly in the dichotomy of leadership is that if you're going to enforce this leadership capital, you have to explain why that they're doing it and, and why it's important. And you were able to do that. And then, um, and then you also, there's consequences of not obey. Then you kind of outline the consequences because there's a, there's a strong why they need to obey you. That's right. And let me ask you this. If they didn't program their radios, whose fault is that? then it's yours, extreme ownership. It's, it's absolutely my fault. It means that I didn't explain to them in a, in a manner that they truly understood how important it was that they know how to program their radios. I didn't do a good job of it. And so how could I be mad at them because I did a bad job explaining to them how important it was? The answer is I can't. And from my perspective, watching that happen, I mean, it, it was most, what most leaders are gonna do in that situation is they're gonna yell and scream or get angry or demonstrate, you blew me off, I told you to do this and no one did it and blame, blame everyone else. 
But Jocko didn't do that, and I think it was it was so much more effective. Because if if you do that, then people just get defensive. Then no one really uh, sees sees the the value in it, and you probably still get some people that resist. And you lose that leadership capital. He, he, you definitely would lose some leadership capital, and you'd have less people that actually program the radios, which is the whole the whole goal. The the way Jocko reacted to that, it wasn't mad. You know, it, it was kind of like I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed thing. But it was, hey, I'm not backing down. I understand. He, he knew we weren't blowing him off. I mean, we respected Jocko's leadership immensely, and, and it, I didn't think it, it was unimportant, but with the 50 other things we had going on, it just kept getting bumped down the priority list. So he, he, he realized that, hey, you guys were just getting pulled out of the directions. You didn't fully understand and realize how important this is. Now I'm showing you how important it is. Make sure everyone does this now. And so uh, it, it was a great example of, of what to do because we didn't, we didn't, we didn't lose respect for Jocko. We didn't see him get angry, get emotional about it. Uh, but we, we just realized, wow, this is, this is important. We should have done this. We didn't make time for it. Uh, and now we will. And, and after that, not only did everybody in Charlie platoon know how to program the radios, everybody in Delta platoon, the other platoon, and everybody else knew as well because we passed the word to everybody. Hey, you better know that because Jocko's going to call you out and, uh, and zero somebody's radio. You better be ready for it. So it, 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 it worked. Did you ever see uh, Jocko get angry where he you know the ego took over in any of these situations no actually no i have not i've uh, i have seen jocko get angry uh but it wasn't a matter of ego i think it was a calculated response um if for a, a particular situation and you know of all the times that we worked we worked together for 13 years now and particularly in those early years when he was the task unit commander and i was his platoon commander uh, i'm sure i gave him hundreds of opportunities to want to to yell and scream or you know get angry with me and he never did that zero times in the movies you always picture you know army people or seal people or whatever arguing and screaming at each other you know give me a thousand push-ups you know and uh that doesn't happen. <laughs> only the worst leaders do that. Yeah, only bad leaders will do that. And the the situation that Leif was talking about was a situation where I clearly, in 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 my normal tone, hadn't been effective in getting it through someone's thick skull that what they were doing was inappropriate and they shouldn't have done it. And so I said to myself, okay, I need to escalate my emotional situation, my no emotional behavior, so that they realize that I'm very serious about this. So, you know, I raised my voice, made some pointed comments, and, and then walked away. What, what was the situation? What did they? A, a situation that, that shouldn't have happened. Um, that's all I'm going to get out of you on that one, right? That's all you're going to get out of me on that one. <laughs> um, but still, there was the, uh, uh, and I, I, I hate to keep saying this, but still, but I like the fact that there's this emotional control component of uh, the dichotomy of leadership, which is something happens that is you're, you're following your standard core values of leadership. Something happens that's goes awry, and the first reaction of any boss, leader, whatever is going to be uh, this anger or ego component. But then you have to ask why. If the why is in favor of the person who's on the opposite side of you, then you have to or. or if, if if the why is not good, you have to explain why something's important to you and then what the consequences are if they don't follow you. So I'm trying to kind of work through this so that it's easy to kind of take into everyday life, into my life, and understand when these things occur in my own life. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be angry sometimes at people. Um, but I have to see, is it more important to them? Does it affect me? Does it affect their life? How do I build leadership capital? How do I explain to them? Maybe I need to escalate 
my voice a little bit. Maybe I need to kind of uh, use logic to explain to them. Maybe I need to have good consequences if they don't obey me, even after I explain to them. So there's a there's kind of a formula to to getting from one side of the dichotomy to the other. There is, and what you just said about getting angry, and you asked earlier, you know, how do you know when it's when your ego is starting to get out of control? When you're getting angry, that's a really good indicator that you need to step back and assess what's actually happening and see if if it is your ego. And then once you clear, hey, it's not my ego. If you did something, if you made a mistake and I'm really mad about it and I clear and it's definitely not my ego, then why am I mad? Well, I'm mad because James might hurt himself. Okay, now I need to make sure that I articulate to you what I'm concerned about, what could possibly go wrong, because I want to make sure you understand you could hurt yourself if you make this mistake again. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at myself that I didn't explain it well enough, but I care about you. You're my teammate. I don't want anything to happen to you. I don't want you to get hurt. I need you to do this so that you don't get hurt. And and that's that's where we come at it from. We don't come at it from barking orders. Right, so it, it reminds me, like I often think of anger as fear-clothed. So let's say in this situation with the patches, uh, instead of viewing it as anger, viewing it as fear clothed, you think, oh, am I losing, I'm afraid I'm losing control of my unit. I'm afraid, are they flaunting this in my face? Am I afraid I'm not authoritative enough? Uh, am I afraid the, uh, the army and Marines might not like us or, or work with us as well? Um, but when you get through that fear and and see from their point of view, okay, it's not so bad. I don't need to expend leadership capital on this. I'm not even going to mention it. Uh, you know, you're able to to avoid losing that leadership capital by just like barking out orders. And so I think of it. You do you have kids, Leif? I do. So yeah, how many kids? kids. And I know you, of course, have kids. You have the. We've talked about the way of the warrior I kid. Have four kids, yeah. So so four uh, warrior kids. It reminds me when I'm dealing with my kids. I when they were young. I, and even now, I never, I would never yell at them because thinking about it abstractly, a, a little girl doesn't need to be yelled at by a big man. Like, I don't want her to grow up thinking that's how the men in her life should treat her. But when she did something or does something that, or one of my daughters does something that is against what I think is best for her, I usually say what a word you just used a little while ago, which is, "Hey, I'm disappointed. You did this. It's against what I said. Here's here's why. This might be bad for you." And then she'll just do whatever she wants. But at least I said my thing because it's harder to have consequences. I mean, you could. I don't know how you. How do you punish your kids? It depends on what they did wrong. It it depends on what the transgression was, because there's certain transgressions that cross a line that is not supposed to be crossed at all. And so if you cross that line, there's going to be significant punishment behind it. And, it, and that can be anything. That can be anything. I, I'm a big fan of yard work. And, and I'm talking about meaningless and hard and painful yard work that takes entire weekends to complete. I'll, when, when I tell my kids to put their work clothes on, they're immediately repentant on their actions. So yard work's a good one. That's a good consequence. Yeah. And I don't even have that big of a yard, but I got some weeds. I got some rocks that need to be cleaned. You ever cleaned rocks before? No. <laughs> yeah, you don't want none of that. I live in this city, so I don't even have a, I don't know, I, I, don't, I can't get them working on anything. Maybe I'd have I a clean have... sidewalk out in front of my apartment if I yeah. lived in the city, All right. real clean. Yeah, that'd yeah. be good. I'm going to have to remember that. They're Two, 19 and 16 now. They might not listen to me Trash now. pickup in Central Park. <laughs> yeah. I've done, I've done trash in the, in the house, but uh, 
trash pickup in Central Park might be good. So, I, I think as long as there's consequences, right? There just there there has to be some things where you know just to the, the same uh, the same thing we were just talking about for seal platoons. It's there's got to be some things where people are going to be held accountable when they cross the line, and there's also going to be some things that you got to let go. And I predict my kids are habitual line pushers. They're little, you know, they're they're uh, they're. Well, they're supposed to be line pushers because that's how they learn where the line is. And they, they don't know. They will they will run all over you. Obviously, you know, if if you let let them do that. So, but on the other hand, I don't want to be the guy that's yelling and screaming. Like, I don't I don't want to be that kind of dad. I want to be a kid, that dad that's like angry all the time about little stuff that doesn't matter. So, it really is finding that balance. Cuz uh, and it's hard. It's and hard I think and I think the point is and you and you show this also in, in the many corporate stories that Echelon Front your company deals with in the book is that nobody ever wins by just yelling. And and letting the ego take take control. There's this huge why. Like what what am I am I micromanaging? Did I not delegate enough? Am I um, not being a follower where someone might have more expertise than me? Um, there's there's all these different situations you outline, and clearly yelling is never the the I, correct outcome. I uh, I can get uh, spun up pretty easily, and I can get pretty angry. Uh, at times and uh, and emotional about stuff and, and something I learned from Jocko is that losing losing your cool or and getting angry uh, or getting emotional is actually a sign of weakness and and you're you're letting other people get under your skin you're letting the situation get control of you you're not going to make good decisions when you get emotional uh, and it's something you got to work on it I think for each of us it, it's hard for me to do that but you have to you actually have to look at particularly with kids it's a great way to actually challenge yourself to think okay i'm getting i'm getting angry about the situation i'm getting spun up or frustrated and i actually need to accept that as a challenge so i can practice getting control of my emotions that, i can detach and i'm not going to get upset and i can see what what the, the right decision is that that's a great way to view it is is practice so kids are often a great way to practice a lot of this dichotomy of leadership but also when you're going into like a corporate client you're seeing a, a it's like you're being embedded into a situation which is ongoing that the leader, the VP, the EVP, the CEO might already be beyond the ego point. Like they're already micromanaging. Like in the case with um, the the sales VP where everybody was like scripted so much. Um, but then uh, one of the employees brought up the point uh, uh, that when's the last time to the other salespeople, when's the last time you ever heard uh, a potential customer laugh, mm -hmm. and you know connection. You you point out for sales, connection is really important, and just being scripted it sounds robotic. And that you know, I think that person was trying to act as if you know they were following. If I remember correctly, they were following like you know patent level of discipline. Uh, and and you at first were like, yeah, that's yeah. that's the way to do yeah. it. How did you? How do you zoom out from that situation to kind of see what happens? You, I know you you interview a lot. You you go on the floor. You interview a lot of the people. You you see what's going from the top down and the bottom up. And then how do you piece together the the puzzle? Where where since 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 the dichotomy has already been lost a little bit in the in the mess, how do you figure out what rule has been which rule of leadership's been overused a little too much? Yeah. Well, one thing that's awesome about the job that we do is number one, we're we're de facto detached from the situation when we come in. Right. So they're all embroiled in this and they, they they often just can't see it just because they're in it. They're in that storm and they don't know what it looks like from from the satellite view that we can see when the storm's going to end and we can see how to get out of the storm. So that's that's a real benefit. The other benefit that we have is that the problems that we see in a corporation that has 150,000 people employees at it 
is this are the same problems that we see in some startup that's got 82 people in it and those are the same problems that we see in a task unit of seals that has 40 people in it is the same thing we see the same problems we see in a, in a in a seal platoon with 16 guys in it and so as you start watching what's unfolding the number one the number one thing that i say to myself is whatever the problem is it's a leadership problem like that, that's number one. There's a problem. There's, there's something going on. They're not, they're not closing deals in that, in that particular case. The problem is a leadership problem. That's what the problem is. And once you start trying to unravel what the leadership problem is that you know, it's a leadership problem and you try and figure out which one of these principles or which one of these dichotomies they've gone too far left or right. Cause the first book has the principles that get violated just straight up. Hey, they aren't keeping things simple. Like that's, that's going to be bad. And, and as soon as we see that, or no one can think anymore. So we've gone, we've, we've gone so disciplined on these people that they're not allowed to make any changes. So those principles are there and you can just straight violate them or dichotomy of leadership. You can take one of these solid principles and you can take it to an extreme to a point where we have salespeople on the phone that are literally not varying their script at all under any circumstances and it becomes a problem. And so, so you were able to now that you're, you're, you're taking extreme ownership yourself of the problem, because that's what Echelon Front was hired to do. So your job then is to go to the, their leader and explain the why. Like, this is what's happening. This is why it's bad. Now their egos are kicking in because they're getting it from both sides. Their employees aren't working the way they want to. And Jocko and Leif are coming in and saying, you're a bad leader. So it's they're handling it. They're getting hit from both sides now, and they're going to defend like, no, the scripts have worked for seventeen years. I don't know why it's not working the eighteenth year. They're going to pro probably they, there's always a first line of defense. I'm sure. Oh yeah, there definitely is. And something that Leif always always brings up is that there's there's two measures of leadership. It's either effective or it's ineffective. So if it's been working for seventeen years and it's not working now, that means it was effective before, but it's ineffective now. And we have to get over our ego figure out what the real problem is and solve it. And so, so I would imagine in a business, there's one thing that's different than the battlefield, uh, which is, so in the battlefield, you, you, there's a lot of ways to measure success and failure. Did we take over this area? Did we uh, uh, capture insurgents? Did we lose lives? Uh, but in a business, uh, the, the metrics are a little more simpler it's not always about profits and revenues. It might be you don't want to have you know too much attrition of employees. You know you don't want people to quit on you. But in general, it's profits. Like profits are either going up or they're going down. So this is a solid metric to measure the success of a business. And so I imagine that makes it a little easier to kind of identify a leadership issue. You might be surprised here on the battlefield. It's I mean there's a lot of different numbers that you can measure by, and one of the biggest measures that we would see, we, we call it SIGAX at the time, or significant activities, which is uh, enemy attacks. And that was the measure of success of uh, our failure. And, and, and you would see units that would try to measure this. So, you know, if there was 43 attacks today, uh, but there was, uh, you know, there was, there was uh, 50 yesterday. So, oh, oh that's, a, that's a win for us. And of course, that doesn't mean that. There might be 60 tomorrow. So, you know, that, that would go up and down. Uh, and, and so when we went into Ramadi with this, this, uh, seize clear whole build strategy of going and taking the city back neighborhood by neighborhood, the enemy attacks, the SIG acts actually went up. So that, that was one of those things. Where because it, you were engaging with Because them. we're engaging with the enemy. So, so the, the leadership, the, the brigade, uh, commander, the colonel in charge of the 5,600 troops that were there that, 
and 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 Jocko explaining to our chain of command, uh, we, we had to we had to actually explain that this is necessary. So those enemy attacks are going to go up so that they can go down later. So so there's a lot of nuances there, and people can keep people can twist those numbers to to make it uh, indicate uh, something that they 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 want to that might necessarily be the case. Uh, and so you really have to look at that long term strategy and t- uh, trends over time, you know, rather than a day to day or week week to week measurement. Yeah, because right, not only were this enemy attacks going up, but so were our casualties, friendly casualties were going up. So it was even harder to explain up the chain of command, hey, this is what's going on. But now you look at like a company and if if you're the guy that's running manufacturing for me and I'm just like, hey, you need to cut costs, cut costs, cut costs. So you're running manufacturing, so you start skipping some steps mm. and using some worse materials that are a little bit cheaper and now the product comes out the other end. That's great. You show me a quarter. We spent less money on manufacturing. Yippee, we all celebrate. Well, what did we do? We just put a bunch of bad product out there. We're going to get bad reviews. Our reputation's going to go down. And same thing, long-term, st- strategically, we actually lose even though we made more money up front. So we do have to constantly, there's a dichotomy. There's a dichotomy between looking between what's happening right now and what's happening strategically in the long run. Right. So that's a almost uh, uh, you know short-term thinking. That's kind of like Wall Street, like how'd you do this quarter versus the the overall health of the business long term. Exactly and so that's right. always going to be something that that companies wrestle with. But at the end of the day, it'll show up on profits because profits will go straight down once there's a, a product recall or, or whatever. So what what in your experience now with Echelon Front, you've dealt with hundreds of of corporations and leaders and leader and, and in every case leaders having problems, I imagine. What's like the worst leader you've seen that just couldn't get it? So people ask me, you know, when when have you failed? And do you ever fail? And it's like, oh yeah. And and I had a leader that I was in to try and help. Uh, he had done well with the company and taken the company from a, a pretty low level of revenue into really high profitability. And he was kind of a cowboy. He was a cowboy. So, and, and that aggressive attitude made things happen. But they got to a certain point where they didn't need to be cowboys anymore. They needed to be more prudent and, and take a longer look at the strategy. And the board of the company looked at him and said, you know, okay, it's time to stop being a cowboy and time, it's time, time to start being corporate. And he didn't like that. And his ego played a big part in it. And I explained to him in no uncertain terms, very directly. I mean, I tried indirect at first because usually, you know, you're trying to work with people and you say, hey, I, I don't know if this is a good idea. I think you should tighten it up. And he, nope, not, nothing's going to happen to me. Eventually I said, look, if you don't start to behave the way they want you to behave or at least lean in that direction, the board is going to fire you from this position. And he literally said to me, they can't fire me. And they fired him. So I was not able to get through to him despite all my efforts. And what were the consequences of him being a cowboy at that point? Well, he was cutting corners. He was running up bills that shouldn't be run up. And you know he was doing stuff. He wasn't preparing properly for the regulatory environment down the road, which is going to be problematic. You can get away with 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 bypassing some regulations right now because the regulators aren't looking over your shoulder. But someday they're going to knock on your door. And if you're not prepared for that, then that's when you're going to fall on your face. And the board kind of understood that and wanted to wanted to tighten up in that area. And that was one of the areas where didn't really want to tighten it up. You know, I, I saw I have a, 
on kind of the opposite spectrum there is is what Jocko called battlefield aloofness. And we wrote about that in, in the dichotomy, one of the chapters, that humble, not passive. Right. Uh, there, there's an account in there about a leader we were working with in the SEAL teams. He was a task unit commander. And uh, he was. this is a very difficult training scenario. I was one of the senior leaders out there just monitoring uh, my leaders and, and training and mentoring them. Jocko was running training, so we were there together watching this. And uh, his platoon was pinned down inside of a building. There was you know, these, these SEAL uh, instructors that are acting as enemy fighters. They're the role players, we call them, are shooting paintball rounds, and there's machine gun fire going off and all this craziness. And so there's a bunch of casualties. There's sim simulated casualties. The guys are down. And the, I mean, the platoon's pinned down. They, they can't do anything. Uh, and we're looking around for the platoon, for the task unit commander. This is the senior boss, man. Like, hey, what's going on? And uh, we, uh, we can't find him anywhere. He's not in the house. He's not outside of the house. So we walk over to the line of Humbies that was out on the street some distance away and uh, knock on the door. And he's just sitting in there looking at his map inside the Humvee. And we said, uh, hey, what's going on with your guys? You know, he just comes up on the radio and goes, status update. And he's asking for a status update from his platoon commander. Or meanwhile, you know, someone's coming up on the radio, you can hear screaming and shooting. I mean, it's almost like out of that movie, Aliens, right? There's just total mayhem going on. Everyone's dying. And uh, finally, it was like, hey, why don't you get your ass out of the Humvee and go in there and see what's going on? Uh, and it was one of those things where I've actually seen that uh, in the business world as well, where, where there have been leaders we've worked with, where they're, they're clearly their team is failing. Clearly, there's some major issues that are happening and it's, a, it's, it's like they're just above getting out of their office and actually solving those problems and saying like, they'll send an email, like, hey, take care of this or fix this, and then think, oh, I handled the problem, now it's their fault, do it. Uh, and you can't do that. I mean, you, you actually have to, a leader, while you can't be passive, um, you know, and you, you have to be able to t take a stand on things, you, you, you gotta be humble enough to actually get out of your office, uh, not so high in your position that you, die, you can dive into the details of things uh, and get in there and solve problems and make things happen so that the team is not gonna get overrun and killed on the battlefield or that the, you know, crash and burn in the business world and, uh, you know, take the whole company down with it. Uh, I'm glad you explained that because that, the humble versus passive was the concept I, uh, of all the chapters I was having the hardest time understanding. But the idea of leaving the office, leaving the kind of tower and coming down and being on the floor with the people, which you often do when you're when you're um, at, with Echelon Front, when you're when you're trying to figure out what the problem is in a company, the humility of saying, "Okay, I need to actually see what's happening on the floor." That's what you're referring to with with humility. Is you're not saying like, oh, I should be humble and let everybody else do their thing. You're saying I should not think I'm above anybody just because I have a title. And you'd be surprised the number of leaders that struggle with that. I mean, that's one of the one of the major things that we do with Echelon Front is provide that direct feedback line. And in some cases, you know, they're going to tell us things that they in a way that they wouldn't necessarily tell the CEO or or some of the senior leaders at a company. But oftentimes they don't ask. You know, it's amazing the number of leaders you'll sit down with. They'll give you their mission statement and talk about their five measures, uh, you know, the, their five uh, factors for success, and they have it all memorized. And and you go out and talk to one of their frontline leaders, and they have no idea what that is. They can't. They have it. It means nothing to them. They can't recite it. They they don't even understand what that's about. So. Um, it, it's that, that's where you, you start getting the front line separated from, from, you know, the headquarters element. And that's a very dangerous thing. So leaders have got to get out of their offices, get down there and help solve problems. And, and to hone in on the humble, humble, but not passive a little bit more. Cause I want to make sure that, that you, you really understand this. We want to be humble, which means everything you just said, Hey, sometimes you gotta, you gotta go down to the front lines. Nothing. You're not above anything else. 
Uh, you got to take suggestions from other people. You got to put your ego in check. If somebody does something that offends you, you got to think, is it just my ego in play? So all that stuff is about humility, but it doesn't mean you're, you're passive. So if you're my boss, James, and you come down and you tell me to do something or you give me a, a project that I know is going to grind my guys into the dirt and it's going to grind me into the dirt. I can't just say, okay, I'm the humble worker. I'm the humble uh, subordinate. And that's what we're going to go do. I'm going to say, hey, James, here's what's going on. Here's how long we've been working in. Here's the hours we've been putting in. Here's where my guys are at. We haven't seen the light of day in, in you know, a month and a half. We need a break. You need, to, you need to give my guys a little bit of time off before we dive into this next project. That's what I'm talking about by not being passive. That's what we're talking about by not being passive. Sometimes you have to stand up. Sometimes you have to, you have to put your foot down and explain to your boss why something is wrong. Now, that's 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 what you have to do. So so let's say I'm going to come up with a hypothetical Bring on that it. on that exact one. Let's say five levels. Let's say I'm your boss, but five levels above me, a contract was signed. It's Friday. The deadline's Monday. We've got to deliver. You know, seven thousand of these units. It means everyone's got to work all weekend as as long as it takes, or else we lo- lose this whole deal. Hey, Jocko, it's not. I'd like to take extreme ownership, but it's seven levels higher than me. My boss is boss is boss is boss. We either all quit and walk home and find different jobs because the leader above us was stupid, or we just do this. What? Where? That, that's a real easy answer for me, mm-hmm. James. Thanks for explaining that to me. Now that I understood that, understand that we're contractually obligated to get this done to satisfy this client, my team, we're going to make it happen because. The, the team, it's not, it's not that I'm saying, hey, we're not going to do this because we don't believe in it. But if you give me no reason, if you just say, hey, get this done by Monday or get this done by Friday or whatever, you got to work this weekend. I want to know why we're doing it. So again, to be passive would say, okay, guys. And now I tell my frontline troops, hey, we're working for the weekend again. And they say, why? And I say, because. Do you say that to your kids, right? right. When you say it to your kids, it doesn't really work. So if I say to my team, because, because that's what James said to do. Now they hate me, they hate you, they hate the whole chain of command. But if I say, hey, listen, guys, we made a contractual obligation. This is something that we need to get done. It's with this client. It's going to make us this much money as a company. And I talked to James, and when we get done with this project, he's giving us all next Friday off. So this is what we're going to make happen. It's, uh, it's, I see. it's so, like that. So it's, it's, it's not just leadership. It's about, it's about using these dichotomies to improve uh, teamwork as well so that I become part of your team and we're working together. And then perhaps later as a group, we go to seven levels higher and say, Hey, that was a little inappropriate. We needed to, we need to manage something differently from the top down or whatever. Yeah. I write a little point paper that explains the hours that the guys have worked, the production that they've done. You know what? Maybe I need, maybe I'm going to use this as fuel and I'll tell the guys, Hey, I'm going to use this as fuel that we can get two more hires. So that way we're not working 80 hour weeks per man. We're going to get that cut down. We're making the money. We're seeing the money. So let's make our lives a little bit easier and make our product even better by having more people on the line working. So yeah, these are all things that that you have to do as a team. It, and it requires a lot of trust as well too. I mean, we we often give the example where you know, if, if Jocko is the ground force commander, he's, he's the task unit commander out there on the ground. I'm the platoon commander. So I'm, I'm, I'm his subordinate leader on the battlefield. And he tells me to take that building over there. Then, you know, there, that's not the time for me to actually say like, well, hold on a second. Explain to me why we're doing this, right? We're under fire. Uh, but if he tells me to do that and I come back to him and say negative, th- then what? 
so it, he has to actually trust me. What, what is what is that? If I say negative, what what does that mean? Well, you you've both presumably have built up capital with each other. Right. So he builds up the leadership capital. Like if 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 basically the last eight buildings he said for you to go into and seize, half your men and, and, died. And exactly. And it, but but if I did it, if if I've done that, and I always carry out the orders, and I do what he tells me to do, and this time I'm actually saying negative. Well, now he knows something that I know something he doesn't know. And, and he's got to trust me to know, maybe I see that there's some wires peeking out, you know, out from underneath the gate and there's an IED there, or I saw some bad guys moving on the rooftop and they're going to be waiting for us in ambush. So what happens a lot of times, uh, you know, some leaders will get, they, they get their ego bristles at that. So if Jocko is a bad leader, he's going to be like, no, you do it. Cause I said, so, uh, thinking I should just carry out orders, but if, if he's a good leader, he's going to realize, okay, he's got to have trust in me to say, okay, there's a reason Leif is saying no. So then, right, so, so then it's the why. He has to ask why, and you have to, and together you figure out. But in the middle of a gunfight, there's probably not time to actually ask right. why. So what he needs to do is actually take a step back and just give me some broad guidance, which is try to get some high ground so that we can put some suppressive fire on the, on the enemy. And then what that, that now that gives me the ability to lead my team and say, okay, I didn't want to take that building for whatever reason. I have some reason for not doing it. Now I'm going to go find another building that I can take and I'll put my guys on the high ground and then I get to accomplish the task that he was, he was directing me to do. So that's the kind of, that's what humble, not passive really means on the battlefield. And it, it's the, it's really the same thing for leaders in any, any business uh, scenario as well. So you got to have that trust uh, and leaders have got to, you, you got to know it rather than getting that screaming match, people got to put their ego goes in check and recognize, um, you know, give that broad guidance rather than if, if someone's pushing back so that you can get them to accomplish the mission. Right. I think that, I think that broad guidance combined with both the leadership capital and the, uh, employee capital or, you know, the follower capital, that's, that's really important because just like in a battlefield, uh, in a corporation ground conditions sometimes change. So, so for instance, um, growth is a pleasant problem. So a company that has a million in revenues is actually significantly different than a company that has, let's say, 5 million in revenues and then 10 million in revenues and then 50 million in revenues. Like the demands on the company and on the leaders of that company change. Like you mentioned before, the guy who was the, the cowboy, he might've been good with the initial idea and building up to 3 million in revenues, but at 50 million in revenues, Maybe that's he just can't handle the leadership tasks for whatever reason. You know, he had too much ego. Uh, something psychologically was was wrong. But you guys going in there. Well, let me ask you this: How do you deal with it in your own company? Like you're you're growing. When when did Echelon Front start? We uh, we started December 2011 and became an LLC in uh, February 2012. So so you've seen hundreds of clients since then. I'm presuming you've you've gone through some of these growth barriers and come out the other side, a changed company. How did you, what were some of the surprising things that you, you didn't think would change that did change? I can tell you from my perspective, and it shouldn't be surprising because what we talk about in extreme ownership and now in dichotomy of leadership is it, it's, there's what works and there's what doesn't work. And, and the, it, whenever we stray from the things that we teach other people and the things that we're talking about is when we struggle. And, you know, initially when, you know, Jocko and I were trying to, as co-founders, we're trying to make every decision here, uh, as, as, as we grew, you know, and, and got bigger to where, where we had more employees, we had folks that, 
uh, were doing different things um, at, you know, simultaneously, it was clear we got to have a decentralized command structure set up where there's a clear chain of command set up. Uh, and so we had to do that. And, and so those things, we've had to put those things in place. Um, and we have all the, you know, we, we're on all different locations, uh, you know, across the United States. So, uh, you know, we have the same struggles that any, any company has. But we, 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 if we revert away from those fundamental principles, we, we found out pretty quick that, that uh, we're struggling and we got to go right back to what we teach, you know, those four laws of combat, the extreme ownership, uh, and trying to find the balance between these uh, multiple opposing forces in the dichotomy of leadership. Right. So when you decentralize, but you're also trying to take uh, extreme ownership, that's, that's a dichotomy. And a leader that you've delegated to, uh, let's say in one of your offices, they might fail. And you could say, well, maybe I didn't train them well enough, or maybe I didn't under read the numbers as much as I should have about what's going on there, or maybe I didn't, you know, at what point, it seems like there's a gray area still where, uh, at, how many times do you have to touch that person so you still can say, hey, I did my job as an extreme owner? Yeah, that's why we have the chapter in there, when to hire and when to fire, or sorry, when to mentor and when to fire, mm -hmm. because you get to a point where you've done everything you can You've mentored, you've trained, you've made it explicitly clear what the expectations are, and the person cannot meet them because they 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 lack the capability of doing that. And at that point, they're hurting the team more than they're helping the team. And it's time for you to make that hard decision, which is you know one of the hardest decisions that a leader has to make is to terminate someone. Because the, the decision is really, there's a dichotomy there in the sense, do I terminate them or is there something lacking in me that I didn't do? Yes, that's that's where leaders struggle. That's why they feel guilty when it comes time to fire someone. You feel guilty because you think, ah, what else could I have done? What, what else? What more can I do? And so, so that's why it's a hard decision. But as a leader, this is where you got to have, you know, you got to have some level of confidence and ego to say, you know what, I've I've done everything I can. I can't invest any more into this person. I'm taking away from my other 12 team members by investing in this one person that's failing over and over and over again to get up to speed. I'm I'm taking away resources from the rest of my team to put resources in, into this one individual. I'm, even though I want to be loyal to my people, the loyalty to the team has to trump the loyalty to one individual. And so it's time to let that person go. Yeah, or I guess you could, uh, upon investigation, maybe that person that you delegated to, he inherited a bad client, you know, so then that's taking up kind of bad resources and he's not able to communicate that to you. Here's a good indication when I'll, get with a client and they'll say, you know, I got this guy over here, Fred. And, you know, Fred, he just, he just, he can't deliver his, he can't get his deliverables in on time. He's missed three months in a row and he's costing us a bunch of money. And I think I got to fire him. And I go, okay, have you told him that? And half the time the answer is, well, not, well, not really. So how do you expect someone to change when you haven't even addressed the issue with them? So again, we got this whole thing. I call it the escalation of counseling. You know, if James is is having some problems, then I don't just jump down your throat and lay out a 12-step program for you to get back. No, I say, hey, James, I noticed that you're missing your numbers this month or, or you're a little off. Hey, are you good? Do you need some help? Is there anything I can do to help you? Because, you know, we got to make our numbers. And, and maybe that's enough for you to say, oh, yeah, well, I just got one client that's a little trouble, but I'm going to get him on board and we'll be all right. Oh, okay, cool. Well, next month you start missing your numbers again. It's like, hey, James... You missed your numbers last month and, and now you're missing your numbers again. And, and this is affecting the whole team. So do you need any help from me? Because otherwise you got to get your numbers up to speed. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
And you're like, yeah, I got it. Of course, I'm sorry. And then maybe you do that extra work and you get to a position where you're making your numbers again. And then that's cool. Everything's solved. And we still have a good relationship, by the way. But what if you miss your numbers again? Well, now I might have to be more direct with you and say, James, this is the third month. Look, I didn't want to do this, but I'm actually going to have to write you up if you miss your numbers again next month. This is not good. You understand that our whole company relies on you making your numbers. Do you understand that? Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth right now? I don't want to write you up, but I'm actually have to write you up. And do you know what that's the precursor for? Getting written up is the precursor for getting fired. You need to get in the game. You need to get your numbers back up. What do you need from me to get you there? And maybe you, oh, Jocko, I didn't realize you were going to be, I, no, you don't need to write me up. I got, and maybe you straighten stuff out and that's great. Or maybe you don't. And if you don't straighten things out, what's going to happen the next time you miss your numbers? I'm going to be in there and you know you're getting written up. I'm going to write you up. I'm going to explain exact, exactly why I'm writing you up. I'm going to explain to you exactly what the expectations are. And I'm going to explain to you the consequences if you don't meet those expectations. Why do you think people don't do that? I, I feel like people, you know, like there's that book. Um, because it's a hard conversation. Right, it's a because hard conversation. Because it's a hard, uncomfortable conversation. And this is what I tell clients. I say, listen, which conversation is harder? Conversation number one or conversation number six? Because conversation number six is a, is a hard conversation to have, which is I'm firing you because you didn't meet the numbers you were supposed to meet. If you have the hard conversations earlier, they're easier. So people get a little uncomfortable and they'd rather just not do it. And then the problem gets worse and worse. That's why I go to clients and say, or I go to, go to leaders and say, have you told this individual that they aren't meeting the standards and what they need to do to improve? And 50% of the time they say, well, I, you know, I, I really haven't, I really haven't made it perfectly clear to them. Okay. Let's start with that. But, but you're, like you say, it's 50% of the time they haven't had the conversation. That's how hard the conversation is. I, I know that someone who has been promoted to already be a leader can't even have, hey, you need to just get those numbers up and you know, let's and, work and together. And by the way, if I, if, I care about not you, easy. if I care about you as an employee, the worst thing I can do to take care of you is not tell you what you're doing wrong, is not to have a, a hard conversation with you. Again, this isn't a license to be a jerk to somebody, right. right? It's not. And in fact, the way you approach it can be in the most caring possible way, which is, hey, James, look, I love having you at this company. You're a hard worker. I know you got a lot of talent. I know you got a lot of potential. And I know you've performed well in the past. But where I'm at right now, I'm seeing you going in the wrong direction. And I don't like that. I, I care about you and, and I want you to do better. And that, let's just play it out. Like, what if they become really defensive right then? Like, hey, what are you talking about? I've been working, I've been busting my ass 60 hours a week. Hey, I don't know what you're busting your ass on 60 hours a week, James, but I'm looking at your numbers. And maybe we need to take those 60 hours and focus them on the right activities so that you can get your numbers where they need to be. Because what I want you to do is I want you to win. That's the most important. Yeah, do I win when you win? I absolutely do. But this isn't about me. I got plenty of other people here that are hitting their numbers all day long. And the person that I'm talking about right now is you. I want you to win. So what can we do to focus these activities so that you're moving in the right direction? And you know what we just did just right there? We do that with clients. We, we role play with clients. We get them better at having these hard conversations so that they get used to it, so that they realize methods and tactics that they can use to turn a hard conversation into a positive conversation because that's what good leaders do. Well, it's interesting because, so I invest in a variety of companies and I have a business partner that I invest with and 80% of our conversations is figuring out how to talk to the people we're invested in you know, to either get information or to get activity or to whatever. It's all 
psychology of having these conversations, figuring out the other person's psychology, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and how we can address them in communication with them. And it's it's, it's this is leadership, task. and this is why we have a that that's why we have a business. It's no different than the SEAL teams either. I mean, you may you may look at us and they go, "These guys are not afraid to have hard conversations." I've had plenty of those conversations in, in back rooms behind closed doors with senior leaders, and you know, like, "Hey, this this guy's really screwed up. He's not professional. He's really dropping the ball. He made a bad decision here. Let's call him in." You know, and and you, you get you, you call that guy in, you shut the door, and you have a conversation, and it sounds something like. Hey, you're you're doing a pretty good job overall. You know, there's a couple of little things to work on here. So those are the kind of things that happen, and it's it's hard in the SEAL teams too. It's hard anywhere to have those conversations, and that's why when we help leaders do that and we do those role play exercises, like Jocko was just talking about, it's game changer for them because you do one, two, three iterations of that, and you're you're going to knock that out of the park when you have a conversation with somebody. No matter how defensive they get, uh, you're you're ready for that, and you're going to be able to perform exponentially better. The same kind of principles apply in relationships, right? Like imagine the last time you each had a fight with your wives. Okay, did you talk about it with each other beforehand? Like, here's what she's saying. Jocko, what should I say back? And then you role play it. Like, do you, do you figure out how to talk to your significant others well, that my, way as well? The, 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 the disagreements I have with my wife usually go something like this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, when I'm casting blame, making excuses, she, she usually says, uh, hey, uh, you wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. You should start taking some. <laughs> yeah, but so that usually goes right. Just like a, that. That's like yeah. a pivot, though, because that's changing the subject and throwing it on you that you have to pay attention to what you wrote. But it's pivoting away from the actual topic. We 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 do. We talk about these things all the time. And and the more you can role play those things, the the, the better they are. And uh, my wife launched a, a business recently, and and I'm trying to help her out. I'm trying to help her solve problems. Uh, and uh, and frankly, uh, oftentimes. I try to jump in there. You know, we talk about default aggressive mentality, like attack problems. Uh, and 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 sometimes uh, I, I realize like, okay, I'm being a little too aggressive. I need to just listen. You know, I kind of kind of hear her out. She's just, uh, you know, she she just wants to vent about the situation and 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 kind of let me let me hear her talk through that situation before I try to jump in to solve the problem. So, uh, but absolutely, the more you can talk about it, the more you can you can role play, the better it's going to be. Yeah, because I, I think for any type of crucial conversation, these the both these dichotomies. And the role playing, the you know, communication is basically what you're saying is the way to bridge the dichotomies, the going from uh, humble to passive, from leadership to follow, like basically being able to communicate the whys of of why this needs to get done, the importance of it, whether it's saving lives or saving money or whatever, and then figuring out how to communicate it once you've diagnosed the problem uh, seems critical. Um, one thing I'm curious about with 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 your company, you've dealt with so many situations. It seems like Echelon Front, no matter how big you grow, it's going to be a little bit personality driven. Like you guys have written these excellent books, and at some point though, you're going to get. I, I don't know what your long term strategic plans are, but at some point you might want to say, okay, maybe now we want to be part of a bigger company, or we want to sell this company, or we want to go public, or take investment, or whatever. People are going to say to you, "Hey, what happens when you two guys walk out the door? Where's where's the value in the business?" So that's another problem that comes up when as companies grow. And I'm curious if you've if you've thought about that. Yeah, absolutely. So what we did first of all, the principles that we teach are principles that they're not personalities. They're not our personalities. They're they're principles that you can teach and you can learn. And and we now have six other individuals on our team that teach the same stuff, teach it as well, if not better than we do. 
And that's one method of expansion is we continue to bring instructors on, train them up and unleash them into the world. On top of that, because you're still talking about scaling people, which can be very difficult, and we've created an online training system Mm -hmm. that's interactive where you actually deal with these situations. You deal with uh, a hostile client. You deal with uh, uh, an ambush situation. We put you in leadership positions where you have to make decisions inside this interactive training. And it hasn't rolled out yet, but it will be rolling out in in the coming months. And that's another thing. So when we have a company that has... 150,000 employees globally located, we, and we, there's no physical way for us to train them all. Now, actually, we can train them all. We can train them all through this program where people go online, they learn the material, and then they actually apply the, the material inside scenarios. And so like right now, when, a client, uh, when you land a client and the client says, okay, but I want to I wanna only deal with Jocko, uh, he's, he's the guy who sold me on this. I've, I've, I, I read everything and, uh, uh, he's the guy I'm dealing with. How do you kind of phase them to, uh, we've, we've hired exceptional leadership instructors and these are guys we have served with. We know well, uh, who have served in the battle of Ramadi with us. They have tremendous combat experience and, uh, and, and this is, uh, they're, they're excellent leadership instructors. And initially when they ask for Jocko or they ask for me, uh, and we're not available, uh, or, or we're not, you know, we're, we're above their price point and they get one of our other instructors, uh, in there, uh, very quickly, they're asking only for that instructor and they stop asking for us because it's about the principles that we teach just to, to Jocko's point. Uh, and, and so we're building the brand of echelon front, not just, uh, Jocko and Leif. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's important. And again, I like what you said that your your your, your company is about principles and 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 also it's about communication. How how people how leaders can communicate, but uh, it's not about just the two of you. Although you guys have written these excellent books, and Jocko, then you also have this uh, you know discipline equals freedom uh, field manual, which I love. <laughs> uh, uh, and this is actually a great book. For anybody, to read. I, I just want to mention this book: "Discipline Equals Freedom: Field Manual" by Jocko Willink. I love this that, like, right in the middle of the book, laughter wins because it's related to what you say in the dichotomy of leadership in the in the chapter with the sales team. You know, you connect to people when they they laugh with you. You know, that's it's kind of like a primal thing from from a million years ago. Like that's how chimpanzees signaled that things were safe when they thought they were under attack. They would all run up to the trees, and then when once one of them realized it was safe, they would make a sound that sounded like laughter, and then just evolutionary, it, all, it just feels safe, it's healthy. So, you know, this book as a field manual sort of describes how you live your life personally that evolves into these principles of leadership and extreme ownership. So I just wanted to ask for both of you, what's your day like? What's the average day? You wake up at four in the morning and tweet your, <laughs> tweet your watch, yeah, that's what I do. I wake up early in the morning. I work out. Because you have the gene. We talked about this. You have the gene. Yeah, you only need I like four hours of sleep. One of my, one of my, my oldest daughter also has the gene. I used to go to bed at 1130 at night. and Or I'd go to bed at 11 at night and she'd be awake studying. And then I'd wake up at 430 in the morning and she'd be awake studying. So she's got it for sure. My next daughter, she'll, she'll sleep an extended period of time if you let her. Uh, my wife will ex- sleep an extended period of time if you let her. So it's, it's, it's partly genetic. And, I like the if you let her. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of it is part of it is you know part of it is discipline, and uh-huh. it really is it really is a root of discipline to wake up early because even when you're 
even when you have that gene and even when you're motivated and you've got great things that you want to do every day, when the alarm clock goes off, it, you know, 50% of the time, you say to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be nice to just stay in this, but shut up. You got to tell yourself to shut up, don't negotiate, get up out of bed and go do what you're supposed to do. And so for me, the first thing I do when I wake up is brush my teeth. And again, I've been trying to point out the importance of dental hygiene um, in terms of overall health. So get up, brush your teeth, floss, and then go work out. When you do some, some kind of physical activity, physical activity is not just about being stronger or faster or having better cardiovascular system. It actually tunes up your brain for the day. There's physiological things that happen when you exercise that make your brain sharper. Pumps more yeah, oxygen uh, in there. It's, there's a lot of evidence that you can delay Alzheimer's by increasing, you know, by lifting weights because it increases bone density and so on. Exactly right. And if you put off, if you say, well, I'm going to work out every day, but I'm going to do it at the end of the day. Well, then guess what happens? At the end of the day, your kid gets sick. Your wife needs milk from the store. Your, your boss calls and tells you that you need to do this project and you end up not working out. And, and there's, then, also, there's also the phenomenon of willpower deletion, uh, depletion. Which so I you, actually don't believe in. Oh, yeah? Yeah, That's science is wrong on that one. T- tell me about that. So, so well, the idea is basically that by the end of the day, it's much harder for you to make a decision that could potentially be painful to you even if you need it. Right. Yeah, that's just, it's, that's just junk. And I'll tell you why I know that. Because if you, tomorrow morning, you decided, you know what, I'm just going to sleep in. And then, then you finally get enough sleep so you roll out of bed and you say, you know, I don't really don't feel like working out today. So I'm just going to go ahead and not, not work out and just, just watch a little bit of TV. And then you roll into the, to the store here and when you get here, some, some folks had brought some donuts in and they got them downstairs. And you look at the donuts and they look pretty tasty. So you're like, oh, you know what? I'll have a couple donuts. So then you eat some donuts and then you, you go upstairs to work, but you don't really feel like it. So you kind of surf some YouTube videos for a little while. You see where I'm going with this? Now picture this. Instead of waking up and, and being lazy, you wake up early in the morning. Your alarm goes off. You get up. You do some exercise. You feel good. You get to the office here. When you get here, someone brought donuts in. You look at them. You know that they're going to make you weak. You walk right by them. In fact, you probably pick them up and throw them in the garbage can and and look at whoever brought them in and said, "Don't bring Lay that evil in. into my. I don't bring that evil in. into my world. Don't do it." Sugar. You get upstairs. You got stuff to do. So, what I'm saying is that idea. When you get on the path, it's easier to stay on the path. When you step off the path, it's a slippery slope and it's easier to go down. So it's like a meta discipline across all these disciplines. It is indeed. And and if you have that. Your argument is you won't have the willpower depletion. You will, you will not. So, okay, so you, you wake up, you work out. What's next? It depends on what's happening in the world. I mean, it depends on what's happening in my personal world. If there's waves, good waves, I'll go surfing in the morning. If the tide is right, then I'll go surfing in the morning and get done with that. Then got a little time to say goodbye to my kids before they go to school. And then I, well, you know what I do. I either talk to a client, send an email to a client, I prepare for a podcast, or I write a book. That's what I do. And what's your, what's your uh, diet like? Around 11 o'clock in the morning, I start grazing a little bit, usually on nuts, mixed nuts or whatever. Just I just eat some nuts because I'm not that hungry when I wake up in the morning. And then lunchtime, I'll have uh, some kind of a smaller lunch. And then in the afternoon, once I get done working, I'll go to jiu-jitsu. I usually train jiu-jitsu an hour and a half to two hours a day. When I get done with that, I come home and I eat usually a very large dinner. That includes steak and and steak. <laughs> um, how many how many hours uh, between dinner and sleep? 
So you have to have time to digest. Yeah, it's usually around, I usually get home around 7.30, I eat immediately, and I go to bed around 11. And so wait, what's the, what's the lunch usually made of again? I'll have a Caesar salad with some chicken, or I'll have uh, a, a couple pieces of, of steak or some chicken, or yeah, it's usually some kind of salad and, and steak, but, but not a huge salad and chicken or something like that. And, and Leif, what's your diet usually like? About the same. That's about the same. I, I, I can tell you, I, I can't even uh, pretend that I'm as disciplined as Jocko is. I certainly strive for that. Um, but I, I've got two young kids at home. Sometimes, you know, they'll get up super early. They cut out the early workouts or I want to let, you know, my wife work out or, or cover for her. Uh, but I can tell you when I, when I don't do that, when I get away from it, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem. And so, um, I, I try to do that every time, every, every morning that I can. And we, uh, even though we travel a lot, we have to work around that schedule. What I love about our team, you know, whether it's, whether it's us, whether it's uh, Jamie, our director of operations or the, the ladies that we work with, I mean, our team gets together, we work out in the mornings, uh, everybody cranks that out. And then, uh, we, uh, we work pretty hard. Sometimes that means that, uh, we go without eating the entire day and then just splurge on a huge, you know, meal that night or things like that. And Jocko, you mentioned in, in this book, Discipline Equals uh, Freedom, the field manual, uh, pe- people like go from like, they wake up at eight they and at one o'clock they start yelling, I'm starving. I'm starving. <laughs> when, you know, you've probably seen real people starving in Iraq or wherever, wherever you've been deployed. Well, and yeah, a human can- being can survive for 30 days without food. You're not going to die. I haven't eaten today. Don't care. Bring it. What do you got? Right. It gets in your mind though, right? It gets in your mind that like, I have to have three squares a day. So, you know, I have Which to Which is basically just a marketing here. invention. Yeah, it's not, it's just, it's not true. And, and you don't need that. And it's, uh, you need to eat when you're hungry. And I think when you, when you start realizing like I'm actually eating for fuel, it's, it's a very different thing. So, so I want to, I want to say again, this is, this is a great book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, because I think extreme ownership that, I love books where, the title alone changes your life, right? So I could think extreme ownership and it applies to so many situations. Like let's say, you, you know, you invested some money with your stockbroker, you lose it. A lot of people will say, oh, you should sue your stockbroker. But the best way to live is to take extreme ownership and to, oh, I'm, I made a mistake. I have to take control of that. I'm, I'm just using that as an example, even though it's happened to me a billion times. And, uh, uh, but then with this dichotomy of leadership, there's a lot of subtleties in you have these rules of leadership, like every executive that you spoke to in, in, in an example that you use in the book is a trained leader. They're, they're already leaders. They've already been promoted to leadership positions in maybe a hundred thousand employee company. And so there are subtleties and nuance when they have to realize their egos getting in the way. Was their confidence too high? Was, were, were they not a follower? Were they, were they, too foolhardy instead of just being brave. Uh, were they? Was this a time when they needed to be a little bit more complex than than just simple? So I think the dichotomy of leadership, and then what we just discussed with all the ways you communicate when you're in that gray area where uh, you're in the middle of the dichotomy. I think that's really important. I think this is an extremely important follow up to extreme ownership. So. You know, and like I said, I apologize again. I initially, Leif, last time Jocko was here, I said, "Oh, that's a horrible title." I said, that "I heard to about that, James. <laughs> I heard about it." Yeah. And and <laughs> your reputation precedes you. And I and look, I 
I'm following and not leading here. Like it's well, a great title. The title fits perfectly. In, I, in your I, defense, I when when Jocko first used that word, and this was years ago. Actually, used that word. I think we were still we were still teaching leadership. Yeah, this is on the original brief that I'd give to the young junior officers. I'd talk about the dichotomy and of leadership. I had to go look the word up. I was like, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> well, that's so, the thing I was thinking uh, is that people would have to look the word up. But all right, let them look the word up. <laughs> so, but like, we 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 struggle with it's it's the best way to actually describe. It's the best way to describe these multiple forces that are pulling leaders in different directions. Uh, and we couldn't we couldn't come up with a better word, uh, even though we tried after your recommendation. But it uh, well it just seemed to fit. Well, I think also like I I see in in the stories you tell in the book, uh, so many people use your extreme ownership book to say, hey, I'm taking extreme ownership, or I'm. Disciplines like you know, like Patton, or like you, Jocko, or you, Leif, and here you're able to say, no, no, no. Look at this book. We talk all about this situation that you're having now. You need to kind of back off, or you need to stop micromanaging, or you need to let your employees, you know, be a little more decentralized. And I, I think you know that. Like, that's why I say this is an excellent, almost two-part. They have to read both books to to. You know, to to really get that that leadership expertise, and and I think the dichotomy of leadership describes it perfectly. So, I apologize for throwing out a suggestion. We won't so, hold it against you this time. So, I'll always throw out suggestions, though, if <laughs> we, I think. And we'll uh, always have an open mind to listen to them. Yeah. All right. Good. Well, you're always welcome back on the podcast. Thank you so much for for coming here, and uh, hope to visit you guys in L.A. or San Diego. Where 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 are you both based? I'm in San Diego. I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. Well, both places I, I visit occasionally. And uh, thanks once again. The, the Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And everybody should should get one. This is such an important book. So thanks again, you guys. Thanks, thanks for James. having us, man. Appreciate it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.